This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Welcome to another episode of Money and Markets. I'm Danny Hewson, and I've got the company of a couple of Toms today, Tom Selby and Tom Sieber. Hello. Hello. Now, Mr. Selby, you are back to chat about peak pension season. That's right. Um, So since the pension freedoms were launched in April 2015, so six years ago, we've always seen the highest volume of people accessing their pension in the first three months of the tax year. So the period that we're coming up to now, that's with the exception of 2020 when COVID-19 hit. So now stock markets have stabilised after that period and with the success, success of the vaccine rollout, we could see a significant jump in withdrawals over the coming quarter. So I'll be talking through some of the pitfalls and bear traps that people need to watch out for. And though it's been a shorter week for UK markets, they opened with something of a spring in their step, Mr Sieber. Yes, and it brought a big milestone for the FTSE 250, which has now recovered all of its pandemic losses. Um, closing at its highest level since last February. Um, It's often seen as a bit more of a proxy for for the UK economy or the UK in in general because it's more domestically focused than the FTSE 100. Um, Some of the the gains probably came off the back of confirmation that the next stage of lockdown will, um, or the lifting of lockdown will will happen on Monday the 12th of April as planned. Um, And also the IMF has raised its global forecast for growth. And we've also got Jen with us. And it seems that playing with toys can make you money, Jen. Yep, everything from Barbies to Beanie Babies have been making some pretty eye-watering figures, but as with everything, there are a few catches. There are always a few catches. Stick with us to the end of the podcast and find out exactly what toys can make you money. There is a whole load to talk about today, but before we move on to Deliveroo shares, which retail investors have been able to trade for the first time today, and to talk about big changes at Credit Suisse, let's start with that wave of positivity sweeping the nation and those big gains on London markets yesterday. Yes, there's definitely been a post-Easter bounce for the markets, and that's partly supported by some strong economic data out of China and the US, which came out over the Easter weekend. And as we've already mentioned, there's improved projections from the IMF, which is seeing Western economies recover more rapidly than expected. Um, For now as well, the concern about the risk of an increase in interest rates, which is typically bad news for the stock market as it increases the appeal of alternative assets like cash and bonds, has abated somewhat. Um, central bankers seem to have managed to squash the idea that if we see a temporary increase in inflation as the economies reopen, that that will inevitably lead to an increase in interest rates. Um, there also seemed to be some positivity towards the travel sector, despite some grumbling from the industry um, after the announcement of the government's traffic light system, um, though clarity still seems on exactly how we'll be able to travel and, and when still seems some way off. Um, We probably have a better idea about the opening up of the hospitality sector and um, soft drink stocks have been doing pretty well as people anticipate a return for sales to people when they're on the go and in pubs and restaurants. Anyone else really looking forward to getting to a beer garden or is it just me? No, no, definitely. No question (laughs) about it. Now, as well as all this positivity, there's also been one or two losers as well. 
Yeah, I mean, if if the kind of reopening optimism we were talking about has been one of the big drivers for equities after Easter, then on the flip side of that, the businesses that have benefited from us being stuck indoors. So if you think about online groceries for Mercado and the kind of cook at home um, outfits like HelloFresh and takeaway businesses like Just Eat and Delivery Hero, they're seeing their shares fall. Um, so the market's kind of looking ahead to a near future where we can all go out and do stuff again. Um, I suppose it's, it is worth bearing in mind that some of the changes we saw during the pandemic were more of an acceleration of existing trends rather than just a short-term effect, effect linked to COVID. So on the subject of delivery businesses, let's talk about Deliveroo. Um, its IPO has been an absolute stinker by all accounts, and that's despite me putting a significant amount of my own money into the <laughs> business on takeaways in the past couple of months. Um, the stock's down 30% on its first day of trading, despite reports in the media. It was propped up by Goldman Sachs, which was the stabilizer in the IPO. Today has been the first day retail investors have been able to trade shares. So what's been happening with Deliveroo, Tom? Yeah, Deliveroo or Flopperoo, as some wags are now calling it after the, the car crash of an IPO it had last week, um, will be probably breathing a bit of a sigh of relief um, because that kind of removal of constraints on trading hasn't led mm. to any more significant reductions in its market value. Um, maybe a sign that some investors are prepared to take a bit of a longer term view after the, the big initial sell off, um, even if. Um, it's worth remembering that as we speak, the stock is still down more than a quarter on its IPO price, which itself came in at the bottom of, of the guided range. Um, and one of the big sticking points for potential investors, the relationship it has with its riders is being brought back into focus again by potential strike action. So um, it doesn't look like life's getting much easier for Deliveroo anytime soon. And should we expect what's happened at Deliveroo to hurt investor sentiment, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly it, w- it won't have done um, investor sentiment any favours because this was, you know, a big IPO for which um, retail investors had, well, certainly customers of Deliveroo had an, an option of participating. Um, but it's probably fair that, that you don't write off the the market and the IPO market as well um, in general, just off the back of this, you know, um, one example. Now, Deliveroo put the dismal showing really down to market turbulence and you know a week really is a long time on stock markets they say it's a long time in politics but boy we've seen a lot of changes and the tech company's debut it came as global markets were dealing with the fallout from the Archegos debacle and of course the collapse of Greensill Capital and that has resulted in a couple of high profile departures from Credit Suisse and some new questions about regulation Tom. Yeah, so the the Archegos affair does continue to rumble on, and it's certainly um, had some high-profile victims, Credit Suisse probably being among the most prominent of them. Um, And there there certainly seems to be a suggestion that the risk risk controls it had in place weren't adequate. And perhaps in isolation, it might be possible to paint the implosion of Archegos, which was an over-leveraged hedge fund who kind of was taking bets on US stocks, which backfired as one-off. But the fact that it's come kind of at the same time as the insolvency of, of a supply chain finance firm called Greensill Capital, and which was another venture that the Swiss bank had links to, um, ramped up the pressure on the business and its senior executives, some of which have, have had, now had to depart. Um, I, I guess for investors, though, there, there may be um, some relief that the, for now, there seems to be relatively limited signs of wider contagion in, in the wider financial system. And, and that is something that has cropped up previously when there's been kind of high profile collapses of hedge funds. So for now, I mean, you know, it's not 
it's not all done yet, but for now it does seem to be relatively contained. Tom, you're staying with us to talk about spring cleaning your portfolios, but we're going to talk pensions now. And we might be in a new tax year, but far from slowing down, this is traditionally a busy time for people looking to take a tax-free chunk from their pension pot. Normally, Tom, withdrawals are a lot higher between April and July, more so than at any other time of year. But for fairly obvious reasons, it didn't happen last year. Are we expecting a return to the norm this year? Yep. So you don't get me on the podcast without pensions coming up, I'm afraid. (laughs) And tentatively, yes, I think we will see a return to people withdrawing more in the first quarter of the financial year than they do subsequently. So um, just as background, usually people tend to withdraw more uh, as a a group uh, in the the first, first quarter of the financial year. And that's for the, for the quite obvious reason, really, that you've got a fresh set of tax allowances to use up. Now, as you mentioned in your intro there, 2020 wasn't a normal year, and we actually saw withdrawals dip to 2.3 billion in the first quarter of the financial year. That was actually the lowest quarter of withdrawals we saw in the calendar year of 2020. Now, the reasons for that, um, hopefully, were actually that people were being quite sensible. So as markets were falling. Um, I think lots of people either chose to pause withdrawals, chose to reduce the amount they were drawing, or chose to delay accessing their pension altogether. Now, since that quarter, obviously a lot's happened. A lot's happened in the economy. A lot's happened to people's lives as well. But in terms of the markets, we're returning to something that feels closer to normal. And so I think we're likely to see people dipping into their pensions once again there's a few things that could be we're moving in in different directions so clearly we've all got a bit less to spend our money on at the moment so even with the economy opening up things like foreign holidays look like a far-flung dream at the moment so for lots of people if you're planning to take two or three weeks away to um to sunnier climbs that's not going to be possible so people may choose to not take quite as much out of their pensions as they might have done previously because they don't need to pay for those things um on the other hand the economic situation could become more difficult for lots of people, particularly those who are who are currently on furlough, who might see some of that, that support for their employer pulled away and as a result might be feeling some job insecurity coming up. So they, there may be some people who are looking to take a bit less out of their pension, but on the other side, those who, who are feeling a bit of insecurity, they might be more likely to access their pension. But I'd say on balance, yes, I think we're likely to see more people taking more money out of their pensions in the coming quarter. So if people are thinking about doing this, maybe for the Mm. first time, just remind us of the rules around it. Yeah, so they're quite quite simple, the rules for accessing your pension. I'm talking here about defined contribution pensions, so things like SIPs, where you build up a pot of money and then you access that money as you want to. So you can do that from age 55, a quarter of your pension is available tax-free and the rest will be taxed in the same way as income and there are broadly three different ways you can access your pension so you can take ad hoc lump sums from your pension and 25 percent of each of these ad hoc lump sums will be tax-free with the rest taxed as income you can set up a regular income uh, stream so that's known as drawdown so yeah when you set up drawdown 25 percent of however much you put into drawdown will be available tax-free and the rest again will be taxed in the same way as income and finally you can choose to buy an annuity something that's been less popular since um april 2015 but still can be 
appropriate in uh, in lots of circumstances. And I should I should add as well for lots of people, the most appropriate thing will actually be to mix and match a couple of those options. So, for example, to use some of their pot to buy an annuity and get a security of income, and then keep some, keep the rest of it invested through drawdown, as an example. And there are pitfalls. So, what what do people need to look out for? Yeah, yeah. So, in terms of accessing your pension pot. Flexibly, there's a few things you need to be aware of. So firstly, if you um, if you take taxable income from your pension flexibly, so an ad hoc lump sum are going into drawdown, then the uh, HMRC unfortunately will overtax you on that first withdrawal. So they'll, they'll apply what's known as a, as a, as a uh, month one tax code um, to that first withdrawal of the tax year. Um, that means that your usual tax allowances will be divided by 12 and then applied to that first withdrawal. So the, the, the end result of that is that most people will be overtaxed for the first time that they make a, a withdrawal from their pension. Now, if you're taking a regular income, then that's fine. HMRC should sort out your tax position through the tax year as you build up, build up an income stream. But if you're just taking one lump sum in the tax year, then you'll probably need to go through the process of claiming that money back. So uh, over, around £700 million have been reclaimed by savers who've been overtaxed on their first pension freedoms withdrawal. Um, if you look for claim tax refund on Google, there's an, there's an official .gov UK website where you can find the forms that you need to fill in. As long as you fill out the relevant form, then you'll get the tax back within 30 days. So that's one thing people need to look out for. Um, another, another issue is around the amount that you can save each year, which is uh, known as the annual allowance. So normally um, you, people can save £40,000 a year into their pension, but if you take taxable income from your pension, so if you make one taxable withdrawal from your pension, even if it's just a pound, then that will trigger the money purchase annual allowance, something we've talked about on the podcast before. And that means that your annual allowance is reduced from £40,000 to £4,000. Um, it also means that you're no longer able to carry forward unused allowances from the last previous three tax years in the current tax year. So taken to its, to its extreme, um, somebody might see their annual allowance reduced from £160,000 in the current tax year using carry forward to just £4,000. So that's something that people need to think about if they're considering accessing their pension. Um, if you want to continue set building up savings in a pension and certainly continue building up savings above £4,000 a year, then it might be worth considering either just taking your tax-free cash from your pension or looking to take money from other resources if you have them. So from ISAs and things like that. Um, I think one final thing I think that people need to think about here as well. Um, I mentioned at the, at, the, at the top of this section that um, 55 is the age at which you can access your pension. Of course, just because you can access your pension at age 55 doesn't mean that you, you should. Um, and anyone who's accessing their pension for the first time this year, or indeed is already in drawdown, should think about the sustainability of their withdrawal plans and make sure that they're reviewing their withdrawal plans regularly. So if you're 65, for example, then you may have life expectancy of 30 years or more, um, depending on your underlying health conditions and all the rest of it. And you need to 
think about how your pension pot is going to last for that entire period of time. If you take out too much too soon, then the risk is that you'll run out of money early in retirement and you'll be falling back on the state or having to live on the state pension, which at the moment is worth just over £9,000 a year. So for most people, probably isn't going to provide enough for them to live on in retirement. No, indeed, food for thought. Um, and of course, right now, the start of the financial year, it's a really good time to start looking at your finances. In terms of your portfolio, there, there are a couple of really quick things you can do which can have a massive impact on. One of the things that, that people can do in terms of giving their investments to spring clean is, is to look at rebalancing their portfolios. So most people will allocate a certain amount of their portfolio to different asset classes based on, on how much appetite they have for risk. So maybe if they've got a bit more appetite for risk, they might have more of their portfolio in stocks. And if they have a bit less, they might have more of it in bonds or, or in other areas. Um, and what happens over time is that those proportions move out of kilter as, as different assets perform differently. Um, so if, if you then kind of, rebalance the portfolio by selling the stuff that's done well and buying the stuff that's done a bit more poorly um, that that kind of will help kind of bring balance back to your portfolio but also gives you a bit of discipline to perhaps sell the assets that that have done well and 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 to invest in ones that have done done worse so um if we think about this in, in terms of sectors you know the technology sector has had a really strong recent sun su- run sorry and Therefore, it might make up quite a significant portion of investors' portfolios if, if they don't do anything about it. Um, and it's worth looking to see if, if any specific funds have done particularly well and now you know, constitute a much larger part of your portfolio. And obviously, that's good if, if a fund's done well, but you don't want your returns to be too heavily reliant on you know, any individual funds because even if a manager's done well in the recent past, it doesn't mean that they can't go off the boil in the future. Um, you can also think about the, the stocks or the, the assets in your portfolio that have done, done poorly. Um, and particularly if, if you know, we're talking about funds that have done poorly for, I don't know, three or five years, um, not just because for a little while their, their style of investing is out of favour. Um, and if that's the case, then you need to sort of have a hard look at it and decide whether you know, it's better to cut your losses at, at that point. Um, and it's, it's also a good time to look around for new ideas. You know, if you are selling out of certain funds or, or certain stocks, you know, what, what else are you looking that you might want to buy into? Clearly, you know, there's a lot of interest in ESG investing at the moment. And, you know, you might also want to look at areas that are going to perform well as, as the economy reopens. And as always, you want to make sure your portfolio is invested as tax efficiently as possible. So as I mentioned, a new tax year means fresh pension and ISA allowances and will protect your which will protect your investments from capital gains tax and income tax once they're wrapped inside that tax shelter. The sooner you put your investments inside the ISA or the pension indeed, the sooner that protection will kick in as, as well of course with a pension you get the upfront bonus from pensions tax relief. There's also one more really important but often overlooked thing you really should do every year, and that's reassess what's going on in your life. Yeah, it seems obvious, but a lot of people overlook this. So if you've had significant changes in your personal situation, that can have a massive impact on your finances. You know, think 
Have you got married this year? Maybe you've had a child, you've bought a bigger house or you've downsized perhaps. Do you need to think about updating your life insurance policy or check your will? And do those changes mean that you do need to consider how much risk you should be taking with your investment portfolio? Now, many of those life events are happy and exciting changes, but there is another less happy change that you might need to consider because when lockdown ended last year, the charity Citizens Advice reported a spike in searches for online advice about divorce. And relationship experts say that post-pandemic breakups are unlikely to have peaked. Now, divorce, of course, has a huge impact on people's finances. And though some women are incredibly financially savvy, it is still the case that women can find themselves disproportionately impacted by the change. Now, I've been talking to Jessica Ayres, a financial advisor with Timothy James and Partners, and I started by asking her what's the biggest mistake women in particular make when it comes to their finances? Well, we often find, I mean, I work for lots of women and, and obviously lots of have gone through divorce or, or are considering it. And one of the biggest mistakes is to not take control early on. Um, it's just some simple principles of understanding what what your finances are, um, what, what's your gross salary, what's your partner's gross salary, what's the valuation of, of the family home, um, cash, what investments do you both have? I mean, it can be quite, um, you know, mindful just looking at your investments. One of the biggest things that I come across is often people are not aware of the level of debt they may have. Um, it, you know, debt is not just your mortgage. It's the car loans, um, unsecured debt, such as credit cards, store cards, these kinds of things. So initially, it's people not having a good grasp on their finances and, and just being aware of what they have and possibly what they don't have. And having a financial health check, if you like, talking about what's going on with your finances between you as a couple, whether or not you are looking at divorce or whether it's just part and parcel of, of you know, life, that can be a really significant change. Absolutely. I mean, all relationships are different and we, and we all handle money differently. And, and when you've got two parties together, you could have someone who's very prudent and saves and someone who's a bit of a spender. So those kind of conversations are not always easy. And when I'm working with couples just on their finances, I, I always encourage if, if I meet the wife or the husband initially I always encourage them to get the other half involved because just having that sort of coordinated um, approach to finances uh, yeah it can be there can be tension sometimes but it, it's vital but not always easy. Are you surprised by the kind of secrets that people have I mean sometimes they're not secrets they're just oversights people just haven't shared. Absolutely um, yes I, I see all sorts of situations. I see you know, people who work very well together on a money side of things. I, I see uh, the absolute opposite. And unfortunately, um, when I'm working with people, I, I do come across situations where you know one of one of the parties just not 
declaring everything. And, and that's the message really here is if you are a couple um, and you are considering separation and possible divorce, you really have to know not just what you've got, but also what you haven't got, that, that debt that you might not be aware of. Because it, it can, you have to remember that assets on a divorce are split, but so can debt be. So it, it's an important consideration. And divorce can bring about fundamental change to your cost of living for both partners, whether particularly if you've got children, but just in terms of having to run two households, having to think about childcare, having to think about how often, how much you can work. So that's it. I mean, that, that's common you know, to both parties, um, running two households. But on this subject, there are some financial considerations that are more common to women. And again, I don't want to make you know, sweeping generalizations, but statistics show us that at the start, there is um, you know, a gender pay gap. You know, it's documented. Um, so f- women straight away face the prospect of perhaps not earning as much as, as their husbands. But at the same time, um, more women end up with you know, looking after the children um, or the greater share of the childcare. And again, as, as you've alluded to, that has a massive impact on your ability to be able to work. Um, going forwards and the flexibility so and obviously on the other side so perhaps the other party the husband will not have the same same pressures in that in that instance so there are some things that I think you know women do need to educate them on themselves on if they're considering divorce and just read up on it and just be a little bit more aware and I think again it gets back to that as early as you can, take control, start to look at things as difficult as it, as it may be. There's lots of you know, forums online if you don't want to actually go and see someone and, and, and make it official to start that process, just to start to think, what's my first steps? Taking control, understanding what they have as a couple and what they don't have. Um, one of my biggest tips, and this it, it's so simple is make sure you've got your own bank account. How many couples have joint bank accounts? Um, You know, and if you're going to be separating your assets, it can be very difficult to open your own bank account. So take control, open your own bank account, start to put money aside for possible legal fees, those kind of things, um, and, and just take positive steps. Just on what you were talking about, looking at some figures from the LSE, um, they reported that women who worked prior to, during and after marriages experienced on average a 20% decline in income as their marriages ended, whereas men on average experienced an income rise of 30% or more post-divorce. That's food for thought. Absolutely. I mean, when I read that, I double-checked it, triple-checked it, looked at it at all different sources because it, it, it wasn't the decline, but it was actually the increase in, in um, men's income that I just thought was interesting. I mean, everything we've spoken about, about the additional pressures that women may face, especially when they've got children, I mean, it, it, that really points to, to that statistic. And it's there in writing. Um, it, it's not 
something that, you know, stereotype or anything like that. The facts are women have to look at possibly earning less following a divorce. And, And it's food for thought. You know, it can be quite frightening for people, I think. And historically, women have engaged less with the finances, although that is most definitely changing. And there'll be some people listening who'll be shouting right now, you know, I control everything. I know exactly what's going in and out. In fact, I, you know, I'm more in control perhaps than my partner. But there are still a lot of women who don't understand some of the words that they see and they find it difficult and perhaps they're embarrassed to have these conversations. Absolutely. Well, first, it's well reported in the financial industry that women historically have been less likely to seek financial advice. Um, we will, we are more likely to go and see a doctor than, than our partners, you know, these kind of things. But for some reason, um, on the financial side of things, we have historically been less likely to seek advice I am pleased to say it's absolutely changing I've got lots of fantastic women that I work with who are in control you know a really good grip on on their finances and understand it well but it's not surprising that anyone would find financial jargon difficult I mean just to start I mean just on investments you've got ISAs, JISAs, LISAs, you've got pensions, you've got EPPs, annuity, defined benefit schemes I mean who who would even know what any of them were I know as a financial advisor we set you know reams of exams just to understand this Um, so it, it really is sort of my responsibility and I think my whole industry's responsibility to just let people know that they are not expected to come and seek advice and understand this. (laughs) That's why they're seeking advice, shouldn't be embarrassed. Um, And and even if they're not on top of their finances generally, it's something that people can help them with. But you're right, it's, it's, there is, I do meet people who, who generally feel embarrassed at not being on top of things um divorce generally seems to knock confidence it's not something that builds up your self-esteem um you can take a battering from all all sides so it's part of just rebuilding i think future dreams your life and and again i keep saying it but it's just the first step is just to take control arm yourself with information and and seek advice Look, Jessica, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, Um, thanks for having me. That was a really interesting piece. Uh, Finally, it's time for Jenny to unleash this week's lighthearted money story. So last week, Jenny, you were telling us, although I'm not sure I believed you, how our used face (laughs) masks could make us money in 100 years or so. And this year, we might wish we had a time machine to zip back the other way when we were still playing with some of those old fashioned toys. So what have you got for us, Jen? Yeah, toys can earn you a pretty penny and you don't have to have bought them all that long ago to find out they're worth quite a bit. Um, So I've been looking at some of the more extreme amounts toys have sold for at auction. And that's starting with one of the most collectible franchises, Mattel's Barbie. The most expensive doll was a 2010 Stefani Canturi Barbie. 
Now, it's not an ordinary Barbie, as it has a rare emerald cut, one carat Australian pink diamond, and a three carat white diamond necklace. One sold at auction for $302,000 with proceeds donated to a breast cancer research charity. I'm not sure if that's not cheating, because isn't that the necklace and not the doll that's worth the cash there? Well, that, that's true. But actually, Barbies don't have to be covered in precious stones to make money. Um, an original 1959 Barbie, which sold $350,000 back in the day for a whopping $3 each in the first year of production, has been sold for $27,450 in mint condition. And away from dolls, how about this for a discovery? A gamer's parents found a sealed copy of Pokemon Blue for Game Boy, which was intended for a birthday present, but lost since 1998. It could fetch thousands of pounds, despite being one of the most popular games in the 90s. God, that's making me feel old. The fact that Pokemon <laughs> Blue for Game Boy is now an antique. Crikey, O'Reilly. Um, Jen, sometimes manufacturers build in value by making limited editions of these products as well, don't they? Yeah, they do. And the rarest video game is the 1990 Nintendo World Championships Gold, which was launched when Nintendo searched for the greatest Nintendo Entertainment System player. There were originally about a thousand of the cartridges, but only 90 grey and 26 gold cartridges are confirmed to exist. And in 2014, one of the gold cartridges sold at auction for $100,000. And sometimes the value increases just because it's still in the wrapper. 20 years ago, a boy in Birmingham looked out for his younger brother and as a thank you gift, his mum bought him a present for £300, which is now worth 35 grand. The collector's edition pack of the Pokemon cards wasn't particularly interesting to him aged 13, but now in its collector's folder, it's worth a small fortune. And if you can believe this, the most expensive single Pokemon card was a super rare Pikachu Illustrator card, which went for £152,000 at a US auction in 2019. See, I kind of get that. I would much rather have that on my wall than, you know, a picture of the first tweet, because at least you can put something on your wall, can't you? Yeah, or, or maybe you prefer something you can cuddle. Do you remember the, the Beanie Baby craze? Yes, I. my kids still are into the Beanie Baby thing. We have hundreds of them, honestly, in boxes. Danny, you might have to have a look and have a dig around there, because if you can find a first-generation Beanie Baby with tags, you could be onto a winner. Um, the number one bear was sold in 2017 for $5,700, and rare prototypes or employee bears are also highly valuable. But more commonly, uh, if you happen to have a Humphrey the camel, it might fetch a few hundred pounds if you look after it well. Humphrey the camel, he sounds like a, a hell of a character. So, so box then <laughs> and not played with, that must be a fun, fun Christmas for those kids. Kind of takes the fun out of buying toys in the first place a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> Maybe, but how about this? Okay. Um, because you might well have read this and still have made a mint. Uh, a first um, edition hardback of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, where it's credited to Joanne Rowling instead of J.K. Rowling, could be worth nearly 40 grand. Even paperback copies of the first edition of the first book reach four-figure sums. And just looking at cars, Hot Wheels... 
um, specifically the ones dating back to the 60s are particularly collectible. Um, there's one called the Rear Loading Peach Bomb, that uh, Peach Bomb in pink uh, is valued at $175,000 and there's only two in existence. Now there's a collector in the US which has over 7,000 of the toy cars and his collection is being valued at just over $1 million. Oh, so you spotted a trend early, a little bit like <laughs> investing in the stock market. That's really interesting, Jen. Thank you. Yeah, we, we made quite a bit of money over Christmas in Lego because I had persuaded the kids to keep the boxes. So even though they'd been used and played with, we sorted it all out, put them back in boxes and made nearly £1,000. So oh, there wow. we go. Impressive. Wow. Toys oh, can make to, you money. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to dig through some of my old boxes of tat to see if there's anything of value. But I don't think. I don't think there'll be anything. <laughs> Declutter. Yeah, that's what it's all about. <laughs> um, that is all from us this week. We hope that you enjoyed the show. Next week, Dan is back with us. Hope he'll catch us then. Catch you next time. Goodbye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes. And the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.